Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. William Dudley, writing for Bloomberg Opinion, and yes, the former president of the New York Federal Reserve, uh, has been quite clear in his essays on the path forward. And one of them is that the Fed will have to change on inflation. Bill Dudley, in your important essay yesterday, near the bottom of the essay, you made clear this is a Fed that needs to be malleable and supple in their thinking. Describe that. Well, right now it's uh, you know all all hands on deck, put making the economy as stimulative as possible. You got the monetary policy, basically, you know, interest rates at zero. Fed's doing quantitative easing, large fiscal package coming. So that's great for now. We are probably going to, you know, if the, if the vaccine dissemination works, we're going to see a very strong recovery in the second half of the year. And I think we're going to see pressure on resources faster than what, what people anticipate. I understand why the Fed's doing what they're doing. I mean, they don't want to prematurely uh, change expectations about future monetary policy and thereby tighten financial market conditions. But we have to recognize that if they're successful, they are going to have to change mm-hmm. and financial conditions are going to have to tighten. There's any number of ways to go here, Bill Dudley, but I think the heart of it is a broad public that looks at the fact of inflation is seen in their monthly payments. I would note, folks, rents down lower here in the last inflation report. And Bill Dudley, pros like you looking at the expectation of the expectations of inflation. What are we expecting right now? What's been interesting over the last uh, three months or so is that inflation expectations, if you look at the spread between 10-year uh, Treasury note yields and 10-year tip yields, that's gone up by half a percentage point. Uh, the 10-year break-even now is, is, is running 2.2%. That's not really very far away from the Fed's uh, you know, long-term target. So you know, the argument that we had to keep monetary policy easy to support inflation expectations, that seems to already have been mostly accomplished. You've lived and breathed this, though, Bill. Would you look at that? as a market pricing in the risk of more inflation or actually pricing in inflation? Do you see that as the outlook for inflation or just the market pricing in the risk of it? It's the outlook. I think it's the outlook uh, because this is about what's going to happen over the next 10 years. I mean, I think people recognize that the Fed is all in. They're going to be very accommodative. The new monetary policy regime means that they're going to push inflation above 2%. People find that credible and Chair Powell is reinforcing that through its statements. And so essentially the Fed is accomplishing its mission of keeping inflation expectations well anchored around 2%. So, Bill, what I need to understand is what they'd respond to. So as you remember, Governor King over at the Bank of England, we had inflation north of 5% in 2011. We had it north of 3% under Governor Carney in 27, 2018. They looked through it. They used that word transitory. But what's the kind of situation you think the Fed responds to and the kind of situation they look through, so to speak? Well, I think they'll look through it if there's a, a little bit of a bubble of inflation, you know, in the second half of the year, just because you have a surge in activity and, you know, prices go up in some service areas. I think they'd look through that. I think what they're going to watch is the labor market. I mean, at the end of the day, inflation is about pressure on resources. And so I think they'll watch the labor market. I think the thing that's different about this expansion compared to the one following the great financial crisis is households have a lot more ability to spend and businesses have a lot more ability to spend. You don't have the kind of you know, overhang of mortgage debt that you had following the great financial crisis. You don't have the, so I think that the economy could bounce back much faster than people anticipate. Like Chair Powell is absolutely right. There are about 10 million people out of a job. And so the unemployment rate understates the amount of slack in the labor market. But at the same time, if we actually do conquer the pandemic and allow opening up and getting people back to 
work. Uh, you know, this could this could be a bounce much faster than people anticipate. I, I will say uh, Jared Bernstein of the White House Economic Council did say that people are saving some of that cash that they that people say they're going to spend in order to make all of the debt payments that have been deferred. So there could be a little bit of that hangover as well. But it goes to a key point that you're talking about, which is the difference between reflation that a lot of people are saying is what we're seeing right now versus inflation, which is what you're seeing we should expect later and what a lot of people are saying. When do we shift from reflation to inflation? What do we have to see for this to be more sustainable? Well, end of the day, it's going to be about how long does it take the economy get to get back to a you know four percent, three and a half percent type of unemployment rate? Uh, I think that could actually happen a little bit faster than people think. Uh, Janet Yellen, the, the Treasury Secretary, just uh, last week talked about how if we get the fiscal package, we could be at full employment next year. Uh, so this could happen much more quickly than the Fed's current forecast. The Fed's current forecast, but we don't get back to full employment until 2023. The Fed doesn't even tighten uh, until after 2023. So I think the, the risk to the, to the market is it just happens in a more con a compressed time frame than people are expecting. Bill, I just want to finish Fed on something important just quickly, if we can sure. wrap things up. Just how the reputation of the Federal Reserve has evolved in the last several years and how there is now an increasing willingness to focus on society and perceived injustices as well. And I was familiar with the kind of response where a central banker would turn around and say, we can't address inequality with the brunt tool of interest rates. And now the approach feels very different. That speech yesterday from Chairman Powell felt different. Do you sense a change too? And what's behind it, Bill? I think there's two things that are driving it. Number one, the current Fed policy is benefiting rich people more than poor people, right? So the so Fed is very aware of that and wants to make it clear that that's not really the goal of policy. The goal of policy is not to make people more wealthy uh, who are already wealthy. And the second thing I think is the fact that the last cycle, the Fed pushed the unemployment rate very low and there was no inflation. And so the Fed realizes that maybe we can go farther on the labor market than we thought and get more people employed uh, than we thought before. And so they don't want to make the same risk of being too uh, cautious about pushing uh, the labor markets uh, to a high degree of tightness because maybe they can go further than they thought. Makes you wonder what it would look like if they have to come back in and hike sooner than people think too. Bill, that's for the next conversation. Bill Dudley there, former New York Fed president. There's a lot of bulls on technology, but Daniel Ives has been the most persistent most cogent bull at Wedbush on Apple and all the rest of the beasts as well. Dan Ives, uh, uh, Dan Ives, Howard Ward, the acclaimed growth guy at Gabelli, stopped traffic a few days ago by saying, we grossly underestimate the new technology knock-on to other stocks. How does the Dan Ives world knock on to the rest of the stock market that leads you to a bull market that is underestimated? Yeah, I mean, that continues to be our theme. Transformational growth themes in cloud, cybersecurity, 5G, e-commerce, it's still underestimated by the street. We're going through a massive golden age and a re-rating for tech stocks. I only think we're a third of the way through, which is why we think tech stocks are up another 25% this year, despite some of these risk-off moments that we've seen even with the Reddit Robinhood situation. I look where we are, and I want to dovetail Dan Ives into the conservative tone of the acclaimed Mr. Ward. Does that enthusiasm fold over into stocks we don't associate with you, like, say, the banking industry? Well, I think what you're starting to see is technology is bleeding into other areas, whether it's on healthcare, 
whether it's on e-finance. And I think you're starting to see that. And even on, on some of the dating apps and others, as we're seeing some of these IPOs come out. Because right now, investors take a step back craving for growth. And that's why these tech stocks continue to get re-rated higher. It's a scarcity value. And we're going through so many transformational growth themes, which is why we continue to see a bright green light to continue in tech stocks here. Just going through some of your calls right now, Dan. Buys 29, holds 6, sells 0. What are the holds? Tesla. Neutral on Tesla. Why, Dan? Oh, that, that continues to be one where you know we view it as a neutral, but a bull case is 1250, base case 950. That continues to be one. We continue to sort of put the goalposts out for investors. Overall, EV, we continue to be bullish as one of our key themes over the next few years. I also think the Chinese players, Neo, Xping, and others are great plays on EV. And my view is it's a, you know, we're talking a trillion dollar market in the next three to four years. Tesla continues to be the leader of the pack. Talk to me about the supply chain and what's happening in the semi space at the moment, Dan. Could this be production, lost sales, lost or sales delayed? What is it? Well, could that rain on the parade? I think that's really the main question that we're getting, whether it's across chips on the supply chain, on the uh, on the car manufacturers. You saw what GM said yesterday. Like, I, I think it's a contained risk at this point. I think it could crimp growth a bit as we get into the next few quarters. But ultimately, I still think the demand continues to be there and supply chain will normalize over the coming quarters. And investors continue to look at forestry trees. And that continues to be our thesis on the super cycle with Apple and everything Cook in terms of that playing out. And that's why, to me, you know, across the board, whether it's on fangs, on cloud and cybersecurity, we're further bullish coming out of this earnings season. That continues to be the theme. Perhaps it's a temporary disruption, the supply chain issue, but it's definitely causing chief executive officers to rethink how they uh, deal with and source their chips. Today, uh, the CEOs of Intel, Qualcomm, and Advanced Micro Devices sent a letter to President Biden saying, please support the creation of chips, the development of chips on U.S. soil because of some of the concerns uh, having to do with security, et cetera. How much could that crimp their margins if they have to invest that much more on creating a domestic program of chip manufacturing, given some of these concerns? Well, it would be a massive shift. And, and right now, the supply chain continues to be supplanted, you know, and it continues to really be built in Asia. And, and I don't really see any changes there. But it also speaks to the broader issues that we're seeing with U.S.-China. Biden coming in, olive brands lowering, ratcheting down the tensions with China. But no doubt, from a supply chain perspective, I think mm -hmm. that continues to be a game of high stakes because you want to see more in the U.S., but realistically, right. I think that's not going to change for the foreseeable future. Asia continues to be where yeah. the supply chain is. Dan, what's the body language on the conference calls on use of cash? I mean, everybody's up to their eyeballs in cash. They've got ample cash flow. They're all trying to pretend they're blue chip stocks, but they're still growthy stocks from a time long ago. What are they going to do with cash? Oh, I think it's M&A. I think we are going to go What are they waiting for? They're buying but, but, Bitcoin, Tom. No, no, that's just Tesla. That's just Musk. Seriously, Dan, what are they what what are they waiting for? It's a tidal wave of MA that we're gonna see. I mean, you see reports of Microsoft, Pinterest, and and I think ultimately in cybersecurity and cloud, you're gonna continue in to cloud, see many, yeah. Yeah. many marriages because we're going at only 30% of workloads are in the cloud today. It's a two-horse race. 
Microsoft, Amazon. I believe right. you're going to see aggressive M&A across the board and even financial buyers as well. And that's going to continue right. to drive these stocks higher. Ten seconds, Dan Ives. That's all the time we've got. Can Amazon increase its market share in the cloud from that 34% statistic? If it wasn't for that company in Redmond, Microsoft, they would be. I think right now there's a share shift with Nadella leading the way in Microsoft. Hey, Dan, we can't let you go. Not yet. Not yet. A tidal wave of M&A and some of the big players participating. They'll get a green light from this administration. Well, I mean, I think you look at FANG names, they're going to continue to be constrained. But you look at Microsoft, you look at IBM, SAP, across the board, you're going to see merging of industries on financial and software. I think that's that continues to be the theme here, is that you are going right. to see really a tidal wave of M&A. That's where a lot of that cash is going to go. Dan Ives of Wedbush. Dan, good to see you, sir. Thank you. As always. Greg Bottle with us now, BNP Paribas. This is an important conversation to look at the dynamics of the market. Greg, I want to begin with the normalization of VIX. John has beat me up because to me this is a huge deal. I got a 21.80 VIX and it ought to be at 19 or dare I say 16 as well. Let's begin with the why. Why is the VIX unnormalized right now? Well, I mean, we'll start with the most obvious response, which is that we had a massively volatile year last year. Not only was the drawdown in March um, extremely volatile, but the subsequent rally back up has been as well. So owning optionality, paying for premium so far has paid out for investors. Just to weigh in, Greg, on a situation with the VIX right now, sub 20, we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it post pandemic. We haven't closed below that 20 level. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's been a real support level for the market. But it's interesting, you think about the equity spot market, the S&P. The S&P is about 15% higher than where it was pre the pandemic. The VIX is about 10 points higher than where it was um, pre-January, February um, last year. So there's much more premium still in the volatility market. 20 has been a bit of a psychological flaw. If we break through that, I think it could drive an accelerated move on the downside. So help VIX. us understand this, Greg, the relationship between the VIX and risk assets and how you expect that to reconcile it at all in the months, quarters to come. Yeah. So clearly, we normally have an inverse relationship between risky assets like equities and the VIX. When equities sell off, the VIX tends to go higher. When equities um, rally, the VIX tends to come off. But you have to also consider the pace of it. The VIX is a volatility index. So when you see equities moving higher at a very aggressive pace, as we saw in Q4 last year, and indeed it's continued at the start of this year, that can help keep the VIX somewhat supported. So the environment where the VIX is really going to normalize, I think, is when the equity market continues to go higher. <clears throat> but goes higher at a much slower pace. Greg, just to zoom out a little bit, perhaps the story of the week is Bitcoin, but the theme of the year is very much the shortage of assets, the shortage of both debt and equity instruments for people to buy because of the cash that's been created. And in some ways, what we're talking about with the VIX is very much related to that, that people want to hedge against declines because they can do so cheaply or more cheaply through derivatives than parting with assets, parting with their equities that they still want to hang on to for this ride because they believe in it. How much is that driving a lot of the action? How much will that keep propelling equities higher, regardless of anything fundamental? I think it's the biggest single driver, the fact we have such easy monetary policy at the time we're expecting a large cyclical upswing in the second half of the year. It creates a great environment for equity markets. But we have had some very rapid um, moves in equities. We've seen some big inflows 
Last week in the ETF space, there was almost $35 billion put to work. It's a, a three standard deviation inflow for equity markets. And that does keep volatility bid. It does give investors the incentive to hedge and to chase upside through optionality. But if we do see a slowing rate of gain in the S&P, the risk reward of hedging, the risk reward of owning optionality becomes much less appealing. We've been talking a lot when we talk about equities of the GameStop phenomenon and the meme stocks. And I'm wondering how much that's representative of increasing retail participation. You talk about the ETF flows. I mean, how much are we getting a capitulation of retail investors that have been sitting on the sidelines for a decade that are finally saying we're all in? I mean, there are certainly a lot of signs of it. You see it in the ETF flows, but you also see it in the option market. There's been an absolute explosion in call option um, activity over the last six months. And I think this is rational in some degree. Um, we go back to 1999 in the TMT bubble. If you took your money out of the equity market at the peak then, <clears throat> you could put it in short-term rates at, what, like 5 6 7%. Yeah. Um, you guys have been talking this morning about where short-term rates are now. If you don't have money invested in the equity market, then where do you put it? Right. I want to go on radio and television now, folks, a little technical. Mr. Bottle, we can do this with uh, the gentleman from Derivatives at BNP Paribas. Greg, I've always felt theta's been ignored, the passage of time of an option and a derivative. In your world, has the theta changed? I mean, is, it, is theta, is a Greek letter, changed the way global Wall Street does business? Well, I think that decay is another word for yield in some ways. You can think of the theta on an option if you sell an option as similar to the yield that you might take on in a bond. So what we saw over the last decade with QE and very low rates is that there has been more demand for short optionality strategies. But unfortunately, what we saw last year was the flip side to that trade, which is that in a risk-off environment, it acts very different to a classic yielding um, safe asset. So what we've seen so far over the last nine months as equity markets have recovered is that there's been effectively less harvesting of theta. Um, investors seem less willing to be short convexity, short volatility to take in that yield that you right. can get from what is a very steep VIX curve. Brilliant. So if they don't want to take in that premium, that yield, as you say, what do they want to do? Well, at the moment, it's been using optionality to participate for in the equity rally, whether that's to get asymmetry to protect your portfolio or whether indeed it's to do the opposite and inject leverage into your portfolio. That's a buying optionality flow. And we've seen more prevalence of that since the pandemic versus the volatility harvesting and the hunt for yield, which is something that I think could start to creep back into the markets in the coming months. Greg, great to catch up. Appreciate your time. Always good to okay. see you. Greg Battle there of BNP Paribas. Thank you, sir. Heidi Shearholz of the Economic Policy Institute publishes and any and all read it. She joins us this morning. Heidi, I really want to dive into the history of the moment. How bad is it? Mike McKee just alluded to the worst of 07, 08, 09. How bad are we right now within the EPI historical framework? It's bad. The unemployment insurance claims, the number of people who need unemployment insurance benefits to get it through right to get through this right now, we're still at historically high levels. So we just to put some numbers on that, we are at the 47th week in a row where we have had unemployment insurance claims higher 
than the highest week of the Great Recession. There's all sorts so, of certitudes we each have. I don't mean to interrupt, Heidi, but this is really important. There's all sorts of certitudes that are out in the media. We're guilty of that at team surveillance like everybody else. If you could say one thing about the character of the unemployed right now, what would it be? The, they are people who are out of work through no fault of their own. During a global pandemic, people desperately need the relief of unemployment insurance benefits to get through until we have a vaccine that's widely distributed, the economy can fully get going again, and we can we can get things back on track. Heidi, we've been sort of hinting at this broader issue right now. The Federal Reserve wants to run the economy hot to allow the labor market to heal, possibly and hopefully with some fiscal support uh, from Washington, D.C. But if inflation does tick up faster than people expect and the Fed is forced to hike, is forced to stop the rally in the markets, that could cause a big setback in the labor market that will hit the lowest income the hardest. Can you talk a little bit about the disproportionate effect of a market disruption of something that the Fed could potentially incite if they're forced to hike too soon. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the key message here is that the risks of doing too little are far worse for the most vulnerable people, for people at the low middle end of the wage of the wage distribution than the Fed doing too much. That's really important. Right now we see a huge hit that low and middle income people are taking. They're just there's been a massive disruption to their labor market. People are facing massive unemployment. That is a really dire thing right now. And then the longer it goes on, the the sort of lasting consequences play out. So if we can get on top of this quickly, that will make those folks real like a, a lot better off. And then the, the question is, if they do go too far, what are the risks? And that's easy to pull back. They have levers they can really easily pull to 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 keep the economy from overheating. So doing the so I think that's the upshot here. The risks of doing too little are far far greater to the to the people of this economy who who depend on the labor market the most to get through week to week, the risks of doing too little are far greater than the risks of doing too much. And there's huge pain out there. It's clear. And the labor market has hit a complete roadblock. We've got now uh, bigger than expected jobless claims. We're going in the wrong direction. Uh, we have Jerome Powell yesterday, as John was saying, it's the 10 number. We've got 10 million who are uh, fewer jobs in the market than last February. 10% unemployment rate, if you were to pick out uh, some of the other elements. What are we doing in terms of bridging this gap? What can be done given how much change has happened in the fundamental labor market, the acceleration to technology, the reduction in manufacturing jobs that we see ongoing that is somewhat independent of the pandemic? You know, those are really good questions. I think one thing that we're seeing here, unlike any recession we've ever seen before, this, this idea of the K-shaped recovery, that really is going on. Lyle Brainerd, a Federal Reserve governor, had an estimate out a couple weeks ago that the unemployment rate for workers in the bottom quartile of wages, the lowest income workers, is likely over 20%, where people in the highest income, highest wage earners, likely under five. We're just 5%. We're, we're just having this huge pulling apart. It creates just an, it, an enormous imbalance. We're really seeing this recession or this downturn exacerbate existing inequalities. So it's just incredibly important. We get the relief and recovery people need while we're still in this, this sort of dark days of the, of the 
widespread pandemic until we can get out of that um, and and see widespread vaccine distribution get the economy going again. Heidi, there seems to be something about cycles in both the downturn and the recovery where the weakest get hit first in the downturn and they recover last in the recovery. Now, I'm trying to understand if that's a natural order of events or whether policy amplifies that, especially the Federal Reserve, which boosts asset prices almost immediately and markets price it in, bang, just like that, or whether there's something else going on here that we can address. What do you think it is, Heidi? This You're absolutely right. We always see recessions exacerbate inequality. This one is worse than we have ever seen before. And that's because of the nature of this thing. It really hit face-to-face services just shut down and even if they reopened, reopened at much lower rates. And so, and workers in those industries tend to be lower wage workers. So you have a ton of people who didn't have a lot before, don't have, didn't have a lot build up to fall back on getting just slammed in this recession. And so that the, that we always see those workers get hit harder, but it's just more than ever before because of the nature of this thing. So it, it really does underscore the importance of doing a lot to get the recovery back on track. Heidi, that's what I want to build on, though. Is it nature, this word nature, just the natural order of events, or is it something about policy that's just wrong? Because typically that first response, we address the downturn through financial conditions almost exclusively, and financial conditions can address, can adjust really, really quickly. So if you hold assets, you'll recover quickly as well. Now, I'm just trying to work out what we can do for the next time we have a downturn, the time after that, the time after that, because we'll be experiencing the same thing again and again and again. What's the policy prescription here? We need to do, we need to have the Fed do everything they can to get the economy back on track. That's going to help people at the high end, but it also really helps people at the low end. We know that the, you know, the the Fed getting the economy going is a key part of a recovery mm-hmm. that adds jobs. Since low income people are more likely to lose their jobs, they're also more likely to gain them as the recovery continues. So that's, we, we that's a really right. cool issue. We also need the Congress to step in with fiscal policy. And okay, make but, sure but Heidi, Heidi, I want you to know that John Farrell has really provided industry leadership on this because he's from England and he's looking at America and going, you guys are nuts. I want you to go back to Michigan Economics, Ned Gramlich, what Justin Wolfers is doing there and, and Betsy Stevenson and all that you studied there. You, you know, you're required at gunpoint at Michigan to take a course like Descartes to Kant. Okay, <laughs> philosophy. Do you sense from the liberal back of EPI that America is going to change to a more European labor aid construct? Or are we still going to maintain an arch individualism of every person for themselves? That is a big question. I do think there is a big, uh, there's a a shift happening, particularly in the economics field. You see, it used to be a consensus in economics that interventions in the labor market, interventions in the market were a real drag on the market. They would hurt the very people that they were trying to help. That used to be conventional wisdom. We are seeing that conventional wisdom really be upended with new empirical evidence coming out that things like minimum wage increases, they actually don't cause job losses, that unions are actually really essential to making sure that middle class people get their fair share of overall growth in the economy. Okay, well, Heidi, we're going to run out of time here. This is too important. In honor of the late Alan Kruger, why can't we ramp in a time distance minimum wage 
increase to get out to $16.23, where I believe the historic statistics should be. Just we use time. Yes, right. That you know, you're on it. And so the the fifteen dollar minimum wage bill that's now been introduced in the House. Oh, come on, that it's would dead. do it it well, it's in the reconciliation bill. So it you know, it definitely has a chance and it would ramp up fifteen to fifteen dollars by twenty twenty five in five steps. And so that that you got it. The logic that you're using there is, is sort of right where policymakers are. Heidi, great to catch up. Appreciate your time Heidi, today. thank you. Thank you. Heidi Shearholz there, Economic Policy Institute Senior <clears throat> Economist and Director of Policy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.